Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John and to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, we've been in a series in the Gospel of John the last several months, and uh, today will be the last sermon for uh, the summer at least. We're going to break for the summer and cover some other things, some topical things and other small series. And then we'll return to the Gospel of John in the fall with the Upper Room Discourse beginning in chapter 13. Uh, but this morning we come to the close of Jesus' earthly ministry here in chapter 12. And we have a summary of the response of the crowds and a summary of the ministry of Jesus. So please follow along as I read John chapter 12 beginning in verse 37 and we'll read through verse 50. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, excuse me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, in your grace and in your mercy to sinners like us who so badly, so desperately need your word, please come now and assist us in the opening up of the Scriptures. We pray that you would reveal the truth to us and that you would help us to believe the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is the purpose of preaching? The Bible actually gives a number of related answers to that question in a number of places, especially in the New Testament. One answer we could give is that the purpose of preaching is ultimately to expose people to the Bible so that people might be exposed to God as He is revealed in the pages of Scripture. The hope in preaching, of course, is that people would come to believe and be saved and become worshipers of God. That is the hope. 
But the main purpose of preaching is to proclaim the word of the living God. And it is to say, in effect, thus saith the Lord. The purpose of preaching is not to coddle the human psyche, it's not to stroke the human ego, and it's not to please the human senses. The purpose of preaching is to open up the truth of the Bible to people. It is to proclaim the Word of God to man. If we are to know God at all, we must know Him as He is revealed in the pages of Scripture, and preaching aims to present God as He is revealed in the Bible. And so the preacher who glosses over material in the Bible because it is unpleasant or ignores passages of Scripture because he deems them unpopular or explains away passages because he finds them unpalatable to this generation. He does so at his own peril. Preachers are heralds of the Word of God. They are messengers who are given a particular message that they are to deliver. Therefore, they have no right to manipulate that message. They are to speak what the Lord has spoken. 1 Peter 4.11 says, let him who speaks speak as the oracles of God. Uh, preachers are called of God like Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to preach the word in season and out of season and not to be like those other false preachers who uh, seek to tickle the itching ears of those who have come to hear them. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 and following, preachers are to take God's breathed out or inspired words and bring them to bear on the hearts and lives of men and women. And the result of this kind of preaching is that some will find life in the preaching of the Word of God and some will find death. Speaking of his own preaching in 2 Corinthians 2, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The Bible teaches that in the preaching of the gospel, some will find life and some will find death. Some will find faith in the new birth and some will be hardened in their sin and unbelief. The results are up to God. It's ours only but to preach. If I did not embrace this view of preaching, I would not be preaching the passage before us this morning because the passage before us is a difficult passage to preach. Uh, primarily because of verses 37 through 43, which speak of the hardening work of God in unbelievers. That's not a topic that I find particularly pleasant to reflect on. It's not a passage I would choose to preach. I want to preach every week on John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I just preach that every week uh, if it were up to me. But the preacher's role is to say, thus saith the Lord, and he's to bring those scriptures, all of which are inspired, breathed out by God himself, to bear upon the people of God. I'm not going to pretend this morning that this isn't a challenging truth to take in. It's very challenging, but it is part of God's revealed word, which means, which means it's meant for us. God wants us to understand something in these words because they're part of His 
revealed word. And if we're to know God at all, we must know Him as He is. Uh, We will not settle for some fiction about Him. We will know Him in truth, God being our helper. Now, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry, right? Uh, We've seen over the past few months together uh, the many signs that Jesus performed. Uh, He miraculously provided wine at the wedding. He fed the crowds, the 5,000 there in John 6. He uh, healed a man born blind in John 9. He raised Lazarus from the dead and other miracles recorded in John's gospel. And we've seen his uh, various interactions with individuals like Nicodemus in John 3 and like the woman at the well in John 4. And then especially over the last four or five chapters, his interaction with the crowds, uh, especially his critics, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And of course, last week we saw in John 12, Jesus now entering the final week of his life, uh, we have the triumphal entry. What we've seen is really a crescendo all throughout John's gospel. Uh, Greater and greater popularity, greater and greater notoriety for Jesus, uh, culminating in John 12 where the crowds are there and indeed, as the Pharisees say, the whole world is going after him. It's just more and more noise, more and more attention, louder and louder and bigger and bigger. And here at the end of John 12, that all comes to an end, climactically. Verse 36 says that Jesus was among them no more. He hid himself. It's all going to end Jesus' ministry among the world and among the crowds. Uh, From chapters 13 on, Jesus has shut up with his disciples in the upper room uh, through chapter 17. And then in chapter 18, Jesus is taken into custody. And then he goes to the cross in chapter 19, dies, is raised in chapter 20. And then in chapter 21, he makes various post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. But all of the noise is quieting down now. It's coming to an end. Jesus is going to remove himself from the crowds. And his hour has now come, and he's going to die. But in these final verses of John 12, John does two things for us. Uh, Two things John is going to summarize for us in verses 37 through 50. In verses 37 through 43, he's going to summarize the response of the crowds. He's going to summarize the response of those Jews who were there at the triumphal entry of Jesus, there at the Passover feast, the Jews that had been uh, following him and paying attention to his ministry over the past three plus years. He's going to summarize that response and give some explanation as to why that response was what it was. And then in verses 44 through 50, we have, in effect, Jesus' final words to the world. The very last things Jesus says to a watching world before retreating in private to the upper room with his disciples. And before, of course, going to the cross. This is a pivotal passage in John's gospel. It's a pivotal passage in the Bible as it summarizes the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so this morning, I just want to consider those two summary sort of statements from John. We'll consider, first of all, a summary of Jewish unbelief summary of Jewish unbelief, and then secondly, a summary of Jesus' message to the world. Consider with me first a summary of Jewish unbelief. Here's the question. Why didn't the crowds, who are almost exclusively Jewish, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus? So all I want to do is go verse by verse through verses 37 through 43. You look at verse, the end of verse 36, I guess, when Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid himself from them. And then John makes the summary statement, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs. Remember, we don't have all the signs recorded in John's gospel. He's going to say later that we could fill 
all the books in the world with the things that Jesus did. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's pregnant language. There's a question that's latent in that language. Some of these Jews would have seen Jesus miraculously provide food to thousands of people. They would have seen him heal or heard of him healing a man born blind. They would have perhaps seen him or at least heard of him raising a man from the dead, a man who had verifiably been dead for four days. He did so many signs, and yet they still did not believe in him. And in this statement from John in verse 37, there's sort of this, this question, why? Why didn't they believe in Jesus? Though they had seen so many signs, though they had been among him, why didn't they believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God? And there's a few answers I think we can discern in this passage, and the first has to do with fulfilling the Scripture. John is going to quote two verses here. He's going to quote first from Isaiah 53 and verse 1, and then secondly from Isaiah 6 verse 10. So looking on, John 12 verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, verse 38, so that, in order that, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 53 and verse 1, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Quote from Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Now, what's significant about quoting from Isaiah 53? What's significant about that chapter in the Bible? Well, it's one of the most well-known chapters in the entire Bible, maybe the most well-known chapter in the Old Testament, certainly the most well-known in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, You could turn there if you would like. I'd like to read several verses from Isaiah 53 so that we can get this statement in context. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 1. He wants these Jews to call their minds, or excuse me, his readers, to call their minds to the things that Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 1, or the Lord said through Isaiah. So let's read verse 1 of Isaiah 53 in the context of the first four verses, okay? Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Speaking of the Christ, the suffering servant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So back in John 12, John wants to call his readers' minds to this passage. Remember, the question is, why didn't the crowds believe in Him? Why didn't the Jews believe in Him? They'd seen all these signs, and yet they haven't believed. And John says so that the Scripture could be fulfilled. There should be no surprise here. It was foretold long ago that the Christ would come, the suffering servant would come, the Messiah would come, and he would be rejected by the Jews. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The suffering servant was despised and rejected of men. He was like one of those uh, uh, from whom men hide their faces. This was to fulfill the Scriptures. The Christ would come, and he would be rejected by the Jews. But what's interesting is that we see later on in Isaiah 53, if you're still there, that it's not just that Jesus was rejected by the Jews, that the Messiah would be rejected by the Jews. 
this would actually be in accordance with, in keeping with, the will of God. It was God's will that men and women would reject Jesus and would indeed be unbelieving. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. The question was asked in our equip class earlier this morning, who is it that killed Jesus? Well, the Jews killed Jesus, quite obviously. But one of the answers that was given is equally true. It was God who killed Jesus. It was the will of the Lord for God to crush His Son. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Now, this is where it gets so wonderful and so confounding that that the Jews, it was foretold, would reject Jesus. Then we're told it's God's will that Jesus would be rejected. And then it's revealed that this was all part of the purpose of God, that through that rejection of Jesus, salvation would come to the world. So verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Isaiah said that the Messiah would come, and he would be rejected by the Jews, and he would be put to death. But this would be brought about both by the unbelief of the Jews and the sovereign will of God. The rejection of the Jews, their unbelief was part of God's sovereign purposes. For what? For the Messiah to be rejected, to be put to death, to be crushed, so that he could make an offering for sin. And so that he could bear the sins of many, he could bear the sins of the transgressors, and that through him salvation would actually go to the world. Who could have dreamed this up, right? That Jesus would be rejected, he would be despised, people would hide their faces from him. And that that would actually be part of the sovereign purpose of God that people would be unbelieving. And that it's through that rejection, through that unbelief, that Christ would go to the cross, He would die for the sins of many, and salvation would be brought to the world. Well, that's what John is calling to mind in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Why did the Jews not believe? John says so that the Scripture could be fulfilled. That Isaiah 53, verse 1 and following could be activated now in the sovereign plan of God. But then he draws on a second text, a second text, and it's from Isaiah 6 and verse 10. And this is recorded for us in verses 39 and 40 of John 12. So if you turn back to John 12. And before I read verses 39 and 40, let me remind you of why Isaiah 6 as a chapter is so significant. It too is a very well-known chapter, probably the second most well-known chapter in the book of Isaiah. Do you remember what happens in Isaiah 6? Well, Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And he sees the seraphim, and they're flying from place to place. And what are they saying? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah, in the presence of this vision, heavenly vision, says, woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people 
of unclean lips. And then one of the seraphim comes, flies to him with a hot coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips as a symbol of purification and forgiveness and cleansing. And then the Lord speaks in Isaiah 6. And he says, who will go forth for us? Who will we send? And what does Isaiah famously say? He says, here am I, send me. And then we have the verses that we never quote and that never make the t-shirt in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6. And the Lord said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. And now here's verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the verse that John quotes to answer the question, why didn't the Jews believe? So look at it in John 12, verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, verse 10, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, what do we make of that? What do you make of that? Does God harden people's hearts? I don't see any way of getting around what the text plainly says. God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Does God do that? He does. Romans 9 verse 18 says, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Well, now how does He do that then? Well, we're not given the inner mechanics of the hardening work of God. We're just told it happens. He's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. It's a hard truth to take in. But it is part of the revealed Word of God. And as Bible people, we insist on knowing God as He is, or we will not know Him at all. The Bible reveals that the same God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the same God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, that same God is willing that some would be hardened in their sin. And let us not explain that away, but let us tremble at His Word and fear. Now John just says this and moves on. I don't know if he recognized that what he writes would be controversial to people. Just says it and moves on. And if I were preaching purely in the spirit of the text, I'd just sort of say it and move on. But I recognize that this is a difficult truth to take in. Some of you have even asked me questions in the past about this particular issue. So I just want to pause here for a moment and share a few thoughts that I think are important for us to keep in mind as we wrestle with the implications of this truth. So, so the question, does God actually harden men and women? The Bible's answer unequivocally is yes. But what does that mean? There's a few thoughts I'd like for you to keep in your mind as you wrestle with this revelation here in God's Word. Four thoughts in particular, and I'll just move through them very quickly. Number one, remember 
that the human heart is naturally hard. God does not take soft hearts and make them hard. Rather, God turns men over to their own hardness of heart. That's why the Scripture can in one place speak of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and in another place speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God is not holding people off from salvation who would otherwise be saved if He just didn't interfere. No, God turns people over to their own hardness of heart, and that has the effect of hardening them further. Second thought, though God is totally sovereign over the hearts of men and women, yet He does not execute that sovereignty in such a way that removes the personal accountability of men and women for their own sins and unbelief. Let me say that again, crucially important. Though God is totally sovereign over the hearts of men and women, yet He does not execute that sovereignty in such a way that removes the personal accountability of men and women for their own sins and unbelief. Now that's a dogmatic statement. But it's, it's not, okay, if these terms mean something to you, a sort of deductic, uh, logical formulation that I've come up with. No, it's an inductive statement based on exegesis of the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign in salvation, and the Bible teaches that men and women are completely responsible and accountable to God for their sins. And I'm aware of the tension there. The Apostle Paul was aware of the tension there. But we don't alleviate that tension by stripping away from the truth. We say what's true, we say, thus saith the Lord, and we submit our hearts and our wills to it. God is totally sovereign in salvation, and yet He does not execute that sovereignty in such a way that men and women lose their accountability and responsibility. Third thought that I hope helps you. God is not the author of sin. And He tempts no one, James 1.13. And He neither creates nor generates in people the very things that merit His wrath. He neither creates nor generates in people the very things that merit His wrath. So He doesn't create unbelief in the hearts of people. God doesn't create that. It's there already. God doesn't generate sin in the hearts of people. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't tempt anybody to sin. He does not create nor does He generate those things that are offensive to His holiness and that warrant His wrath. God is not the author of sin. And John 12, verse 40, does not make Him the author of sin. Fourth thought to keep in mind. As you wrestle through the hardening work of God in the hearts of unbelievers, the general pattern in Scripture with respect to the, to the decree of God, not to save an individual, but to leave them in their sins and even to harden them, is ordinarily understood in Scripture as a passive work of God. The decree of God to harden, the decree of God to leave a person in their sins, is ordinarily understood in Scripture to be a passive work of God. It's generally understood to be a passing over, a withholding of grace. So we should not think if, if God decrees He's going to save some and He's not going to save others, that He's working with neutral hearts, and that in the one case, he needs to minister in grace and in creative power to bring about a positive response to the gospel. He definitely needs to do that in that case. 
New birth is totally a work of the Spirit of God. It's a result of the creative power of God. Nothing will happen positively in those individuals unless God, in His grace, condescends to work in them to bring about a saving response to the gospel. It does not work in the same way with those who do not believe. God does not need to undertake any sort of positive activity to bring about a negative response to Jesus. God just backs away. He passes over. He withholds that supernatural regenerating grace that He gives to those who are His elect. He just passes them over. This is the way the Bible ordinarily speaks about the hardening work of God. It is a passive act of God. A judicial passing over. A judicial turning over to harden the hearts of those who are unbelieving. Well, the Jews were told back now in John 12, they were hardened in their unbelief. Their eyes were blind, and God did not open them. And why did He not open their eyes? Why did He not soften their hearts? Again, I want to remind you, it's so that life could come to the world. It's that through the hard hearts of the Jews, salvation would come to the world. Because those same hard hearts that rejected Jesus were the same hard hearts that called out to Pilate, crucify Him, crucify Him. They're the same hard hearts that mocked Him as He made His way to the cross. And the same hard hearts that stood idly by as the Savior of the world died on the cross for the sins of the world. And it's through that unbelief that God brought about redemption for sinners the world over. It's through that unbelief that God brought about your salvation if you're in Christ. Well, now let's move on to verses 41 through 43. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Why didn't the Jews believe? Well, that Isaiah 53.1 could be fulfilled, and that Isaiah 6.10 could be fulfilled, and the hardening of men's hearts. And yet I read in verse 42 almost this idea that though they were unbelieving, there was something so attractive about Jesus, something so winsome about Jesus, something so incontrovertible about His miracles that people were still, they found themselves drawn to Jesus. And yet even they would not believe for fear of the authorities. As verse 43 says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They counted the cost of allegiance to Jesus, of following Jesus, and they chose man over God. Perhaps these Jews were in the same predicament that the uh, man healed from his blindness in John 9 was in. Remember? His parents come and they won't defend him. They sort of say, he's of age, ask him. The parents won't defend him. Why? Because they knew that if anyone showed any sort of allegiance to Jesus, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. So they back away from their son. And their son testifies about Jesus and he is thrown out of the synagogue. These Jews are in a similar situation. There's something undeniable about Jesus. There's something attractive about Jesus. There's something I see in Jesus that perhaps I want. There's something I see in Jesus that I need to acknowledge. And yet they would not, because they love the glory that comes from man 
more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the affirmation that came with their seat in the synagogue than the cross-bearing following after Jesus. People do this all the time today. Choose the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God. They think if I follow Christ, I will be despised, I'll be made fun of, I'll be belittled in some parts of the world, even persecuted, and I'll lose all the glory that comes from man. But if I don't follow Christ and live according to the world's values, I'll be liked, I'll be esteemed, I'll be affirmed, I'll be wanted, I'll get glory from man. Hang the glory of God, I'm going after the glory that comes from man. So hear these words, you young people, you who are currently choosing between the world and Jesus. Make no mistake, you're in a similar predicament. You're choosing between the glory that comes from man and the glory that comes from God. Which will you choose? Hear these words, you who are almost there with Jesus. You've thought about repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in Him, but haven't fully accepted Him yet. You cannot serve God and man. You cannot have the glory that comes from this world and the glory that comes from God. Hear these words, you Christians who have grown slack in your walk with Christ, and don't identify with Jesus in the ways you used to. Listen, it is about to get much harder to be a Christian in 21st century America. A lot of the cultural capital that comes with sitting in these pews today, it's vanishing before our eyes. So get this in your bloodstream, that I want the glory that comes from God. I couldn't care less about the glory that comes from man. Take the world, but leave me Jesus. That's the attitude of faith. That's the attitude of the follower of Christ. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. I'm going for that glory, the glory of God. I'm embracing the glory as of the only Son sent from the Father. I'm going to trust Him, believe in Him. Hang the world, leave the world, give me Jesus. And I will not allow God being my helper, my heart to be ensnared and, and wooed by the glory that comes from man, but I will embrace the glory that comes from God. So let's summarize what we've seen under this first heading. Why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus? I can really distill this into four answers if you're taking notes. Number one, because their hearts were hard. Number one, because their hearts were hard. Number two, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Number three, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. That's Isaiah 53, 1, 6, 10. And number four, so that salvation could come to the world. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? Their hearts were hardened. They loved the glory of man so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled so that salvation could come to the world. Jesus was no failure. He didn't just fail to win a following. No, God was in control. It was the will of the Lord that He would be rejected, that He would be crushed, and that salvation would come to the world. Now the second major heading, and we'll be much more brief here. We've seen a summary of Jewish unbelief. Now secondly, a summary of Jesus' message to the world. Summary of Jesus' message to the world in verses 44 through 50. What were Jesus' final words to the crowds? 
Let's read together verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words. He has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, there's something huge to see right here briefly before looking specifically at the words themselves. John just got done telling us that some people will have their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened by the decree of God. Just got done telling us that. And yet here's Jesus saying, whoever believes in me, whoever sees me, if anyone hears my words, I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What's the point? Did Jesus just not get the memo? Did he not know that he was coming in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6? No, the point is this. The sovereignty of God in salvation, and even in the hardening of unbelievers, is not to impede in any way the free and sincere offer of the gospel to all men and women everywhere. I'll say that again. The sovereignty of God in salvation is not to impede in any way the free and sincere offer of the gospel to all men and women everywhere. Nothing about verses 37 through 43 should keep us from saying what Jesus plainly says in verse 46, that Jesus has come into the world as light, that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. There is no one in the world you cannot say those words to. Believe in the light of the world and you will be saved. There is no soul under heaven you cannot say that to. The sovereignty of God is in no way opposed to the free offer of the gospel. Now verses 44 through 50 are the last words of Jesus on earth before being alone with his disciples for a time and then going to the cross. He's five days from being crucified. And these are the last recorded words of Jesus to the crowds. just want you to feel the weight of this moment. Jesus has just possessed in triumph into Jerusalem. They've laid down the palm branches before him. He fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 coming in on donkey's colt. And there he revealed that he himself is the king of Israel. Then, of course, that more astounding revelation that the king indeed would die. He'd be like a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies so that it may bear much fruit. He's just come in, proclaimed himself to be king, and announced that the king is going to die. Now, here is last words to the world before he shut up with his disciples and before he goes to the cross. What's he going to say? In a Bible study this week, we were talking about the Great Commission at one point. Recorded in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20, and in a few other places in the New Testament. And we call that passage the Great Commission. Those words are nowhere in the Bible, they're not there but it's so much a part of our vocabulary where Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, etc. It's a great commission. It is a great commission. We think of it as the great commission because why? These are the last recorded words of Jesus before his disciples, before the founding of his church. 
It's a great commission. Here we have the last recorded words of Jesus to the world. And they should, like the Great Commission, in a special way, merit our peculiar attention. So what does Jesus choose to communicate to the world? What's the very last words He says before leaving them, departing from them? There are three main things Jesus emphasizes, three main things Jesus communicates, and they're themes that we've seen all throughout the gospel so far. I'll be brief here. What are the three things that Jesus draws their attention to? First of all, Jesus wants them to know that He and His Father are one. Jesus and His Father are one. Jesus said that back in John 10, I believe, verse 31. I and the Father are one. Back in the very beginning of John's gospel, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus wants us to know, wants the world to know, I am one with the Father, and I am the only one authorized to speak for Him. Because I'm the Son of God. I'm the only begotten of the Father sent into the world. So he says, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus is going to say in a couple chapters from now in John 14, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say to him? Have I been with you so long? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what the Father is like? Look at me, Philip. Look at me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And if you believe in me, mark my words, you're not only believing in me, but you're believing in Him who sent me. I and the Father are one. And I'm authorized as His unique Son to speak for Him. And that's what He says in verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I'm leaving the world, but I want you to remember whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the words I have spoken to you are the words of my Father in heaven. I speak for Him. As these crowds remembered back on the things Jesus had said, the things they had seen Him done, Jesus' instruction is, that's the one speaking with the authority of the Father. That's the one carrying on the works that He had witnessed in heaven. The one carrying on the works He was authorized to do by the Father. I and the Father are one. That's the first thing Jesus emphasizes. The second thing Jesus emphasizes in these final words to the crowds, to the world, Jesus tells them that He is the light of the world. And He is the light of the world. He said this in John 8 and verse 12. He said it again in John 9 verses 4 and 5. And He says it again here in verse 46. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. It's one of those wonderful verses in the Bible. Remember the definition we gave to that word world in John's Gospel? God so loved the world. He loved the cosmos. What does John mean when he uses that word? Well, whenever you see that word in John's gospel, world, he is referring to the created order in active rebellion against God. So, we observed in John 3.16, it's not that we're to be so impressed that God loved the world. Eight billion people, or however many there are on the world now. So big. 
It's not the bigness of the world that's emphasized. It's the badness of the world that's emphasized. It's that God loved the world, the created order and active rebellion against its maker, that realm of darkness. And He came to that world as light. He came as the light of the world so that people who believe on Him will no longer remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is pleased to shine on them and to bring into their world of sin and darkness perfect clarity, moral clarity, moral purity, salvation, revelation light, and to give them the light of light by which they will no longer walk in darkness but walk in saving light. And Jesus says that if you have me, you have the light of life. Jesus says, I've come into the world, the created order, an act of rebellion against God, that realm of sin and darkness, and I have come as the light of the world, that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. What a precious truth to people who can remember what it was like to be in darkness. As the Lord fulfilled His promise, you're not going to remain there. You're not going to stay there. I'm going into that realm of sin and darkness. I'm pulling you out. You're not going to remain there anymore. You'll walk in the light that I provide as the light of the world. And this is Jesus' message to the crowds. You who are in darkness, upon you has dawned a great light. Isaiah 63. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And then the third thing that Jesus conveys in these final words, and that is that His mission is one of salvation, not condemnation. It's one of salvation not condemnation. Now, John 3 said the world is condemned already. It doesn't mean that people aren't condemned in their sin. They will be condemned. There will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the world will be condemned. But the point is, if God never sent His Son into the world, He doesn't have to do anything to condemn anybody. The world's already condemned. But Jesus comes on a mission of salvation. He comes not to judge the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Though he doesn't save every individual person, but he saves every kind of person, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he's the only world, excuse me, the only Savior the world has. And as he sees those crowds, he knows what's going to come, He knows he's five days from his crucifixion. What he wants them to know is that I have come into the world as light, and I've come to save the world. I've come with a message of salvation. I've come with a gospel of grace. I've come with a command from my Father that's not eternal death, but is eternal life. And it's that message and that gospel that I'm bringing to you. And John, through Jesus' words to the crowds there, says this to every reader of his gospel. To every person in the world, even today, the mission of Jesus was a mission of salvation. And that mission is still being carried out today. How I wish I could somehow bring the risen Christ to you this morning. He does come through His Word. And what would He say to you if He came this morning? What would He say to the world if He could have the tallest platform from which to speak and to cry out and to lift up his voice. What would he say now, 2,000 years on from his crucifixion? He would say, you need to know this. I and the Father are one. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't believe the lies of the professors and the prophets and the politicians. You want access to God. You come only through me. I and the Father are one, and I alone speak for Him. And He would say to a watching world, and He has said through His Word, I'm the light of the world. If you believe on me, you will not remain in darkness. This realm of sin and death and condemnation and darkness, I have come to it. And if you embrace me, if you believe on me, if you become a follower of mine, you will not remain there, but will have the light of life. And he would say to a watching world, a listening world, that my mission is not one of judgment. Judgment is coming. The Word will judge on the last day. But the reason I came, the reason I died, and the reason I rose again was so that sinners could be saved by the grace of God, could be saved through the gospel, could be saved through repenting of sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing they may have life in His name. His words haven't changed. His purposes haven't changed than what they were then, five days before He went to the cross. And He says them to you now. I'm one with my Father and the light of the world. If you believe in me, you won't remain in darkness. And my mission is one of salvation. If you would believe, you would be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause the words of the risen Christ, the words of your word, to be alive in our hearts now. That you would awaken our minds, awaken our spirits to the truth of your word. We so thank you that the command that you gave to your son, the commandment he was to act out and to speak was eternal life. Not judgment, not wrath, not death, you have given us other warnings in your word that all those who reject Christ, all those who refuse to acknowledge you as the true and living God will come into judgment. But we thank you that you sent your Son to bring eternal life to all those who believe. Oh, cause our hearts to run out to him, pleading with him, Lord, have me, take me, save me, forgive my sins. Please make me a follower of yours. Take me out of the darkness I have been caught up in. Don't allow me to remain there. Bring me into the light of your love and in the light of your kingdom. Do that for sinners in this place even now. And for those who perhaps for many years have been walking in the light and walking as followers of Jesus, convince us afresh of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. As we come before the Lord's table now and remember your death for sinners, we pray, Father, that you would, in a special way, in a fresh way, awaken our hearts to the glory of the message of salvation, to the glory of what you have done in the death of your own Son for sinners like us. Give us very great thoughts, very high thoughts of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.